from Egypt to the promised land. The subtitle for, for today, it's going to be uh, Understanding the Promised Land. And there's a sense in which we almost have to understand the what it isn't so that we know exactly what it is that uh, we are looking for. So let's have a word of prayer as we begin um, looking into God's word this morning. Amen. Well, in this 15th installment, we're, we've, we've crossed into the promised land. We, we went across the Jordan. And uh, we almost need to re, regather, regroup, because we need to understand what's there for us. Now, we began a long time ago, and in some of the first uh, messages, we made note to the fact that Jesus made a statement in his ministry in John chapter 10 when he's speaking about the, the sheep and the good shepherd. He said, I came that they may have life, they being the sheep. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, at first glance, abundantly may seem, you know, life eternal in heaven. And, uh, and uh, obviously there is a, a sense in which that's a proper interpretation. But there's got to be more than that. It, it's got to be more than just living, sort of putting up with life, just bearing through it until I get to heaven. There's got to be more than that. So when he says abundantly, that's a promise. You were meant to have an abundant life. Now, what's your definition of abundant? As we look into a summary of uh, what we've done so far, we want to remember this is a spiritual journey. It's a spiritual journey that we have come and uh, began a, 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 a trip, we could say, which began in Egypt. And uh, it's going to culminate really in Joshua chapter 6, verse 20, with a little thing that happens as they come to the city of Jericho. It says, the people shouted with a great shout, and the walls fell down. But then that sort of takes you back to the beginning. If you remember in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, it tells us that the people were in chains, they were in shackles. So we began in shackles in Egypt, and we're ending in Canaan in shouting. The shouts of joy and of the, the understanding that there is a God in heaven who's on my side. We've walked many miles. We have tried to understand all of the ways of God. Uh, remember in Hebrews 3.10, what one of the things that God complained to the Hebrews about while they were in the desert was, you did not know my ways. You could not seem to have, were unable to understand my ways. And so we have tried to get to understand the mind of God, the ways of God in a very general term. All of the counsel 
of the gospel of Christ. We took these three lands that were just shown to us, Egypt, Sinai, Peninsula, and the Promised Land, and we acquainted them with 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where it says that there is a natural man, a carnal man, and a spiritual man. And we said that the natural man is the Egyptian. He doesn't know God. Not in a personal sense. Not in a real sense. Not in a saving sense. He's surrounded by religion. Yes, there were many a gods in Egypt. And, and we, we went through the fact that those ten plagues was an attack by God Almighty on the, on the most ten powerful gods of Egypt. And then we, we saw that uh, there is this place called the Sinai Peninsula. It's out of Egypt into Sinai, and there is a legitimate desert experience, but then there is an illegitimate desert experience. And though we come into the desert, we're not meant to stay in the desert. That's the carnal man. He's the one that sort of comes to the desert and he gets to liken it so much that he pitches a tent and means to live in a place where he was only supposed to be a sojourner. And then there's the promised land, Canaan. That's the spiritual man. He's the one who has come to the understanding of the promises of God and claims them and therefore lives in the abundant life. But there were two barriers, there's two obstacles that we go through, and we have to understand what these barriers are. The two obstacles are the Red Sea and the Jordan River. And the Dead Sea, we found out from 1 Corinthians 10, has to do with identification. The Hebrews, it says, that when they crossed the Red Sea, they were baptized unto Moses and onto the cloud. We said that uh, it's about identifying. Baptism, water baptism to the believer is identification, identifying themselves with Christ. It's a step in that journey. And folks, you can't skip any steps. You gotta, you got to understand, you can't skip any steps. And then the, there's the Jordan River. Where the Red Sea meant identification, the Jordan River, another obstacle, means consecration. They consecrated themselves in a very special way, through death, to enter into this land of rest. And there were two deaths that we talked about. There is the death of sin in Egypt, where we died to the world, and we turned our backs on the world. And there is the death to self, where we learn not to trust within ourselves, to live within ourselves, to think that we are capable, but to understand I am, as we said in Galatians 2.20, crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yes, I do live, but not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the power of the Son of God who gave himself for me. And so we learn that in order to enter the rest, we have to die to self. We uh, spoke about all these things. And we have reached the Jordan through trials of circumstances. And almost dead, we abandoned ourselves to the cause of God. We died to self. So our first point in remembering was that of Romans 6.11. Dead 
to ourselves. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Dead to yourself. Dead to your selfishness. To your ego. To your self-centeredness. To thinking I and I only can do something for myself. When you're done realizing I can do nothing, even as a Christian, I can do nothing. I said, you know, if there, if there are popular sayings that have damaged the mind of the believer, one of them is this ridiculous thought, God helps those to, who help themselves. You know, it may sound so right, but it is biblically so wrong. God helps. So if I can't help myself, God won't help me? So really I need to give God a hand? That sounds like a really small God. That's not the God of Scripture. So, Romans 6.11, consider yourselves dead unto sin. Verse 2, I mean the second point is then, alive. Alive unto God, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. Dead to yourself, but alive unto God. And remember the examples that we looked at. We looked at Abraham, Moses. We looked at Esther. We looked at Jonah. And it wasn't until they saw themselves dead and without resources that God transmitted to them that resurrected life. Romans chapter 6 tells us it's not till you are dead and buried that you receive resurrected life. You can't get resurrected power if you never die. You've got to die to be resurrected. You've got to die to yourself so that you can cross over into the land of rest. And what do we find on the other side? Um, be looking in your Bibles, Joshua chapter 1. If you can just start working your way there. It's uh, the sixth book of the Bible if you start from Genesis. Uh, and Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then it's Joshua. If you get to Judges, you've gone one too far. What do we find? Well, we find a message from God that be, immediately says to the believer, Fear not. Fear not. You are about to cross. You're going to cross. You cross. Fear not. Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is what the Lord says to uh, Joshua. He says, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Verse 5. No man. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right nor to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. You catching those words? They're encouraging words, folks. Verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night 
so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble, or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Fear not. Remember that the abundant life, this victorious life, was first a promise. And you don't have to fight to get a promise. You don't have to work to receive a promise. You just have to receive it. You don't fight to get it. You don't work to get it. You just receive it. That was the whole message to the Hebrews. They thought they had to go in and, and fight for the land. They thought they had to go in and beat all those people to get the land that they had been promised to them. And what they didn't realize, it was already theirs. All they had to do is walk in and take possession. They didn't understand. Let us not fall and fail in understanding that also. That rest doesn't come because we work for it, because we fight for it. It comes because we receive it. I have come that you might have life. And life in abundance. He did it all. All you have to do now is receive that abundant life. It was prayer which introduced us into the family of God. At some point in your life, in some place, you prayed. You bowed your head and you surrendered your heart to Christ. You took note of the blood of Jesus Christ. And you left Egypt. It was a prayer that introduced you into the family of God. It is a prayer which introduces us into the promised land. It is a time and moment of surrender. Uh, there's, a, there's a little prayer that uh, was written a long time ago that helps us understand what, what it kind of means. And uh, I, I have it here in the screen for you. And you think, well, is it magical? Are there magic words to it or something? And the idea, no, it isn't. And, and it's not about just praying, you know. Uh, I always, I, ha I have a good understanding of what repetitious prayer is. Because as a child, I was taught to pray the Our Father, probably most of you. And um, so um, uh, I was, you know, I, I had to get it done. So I knew that uh, it was about just saying the words. I mean, I knew that as a child. So it was a challenge for me as to how fast I could do it to get it over with. You know, and so, you know, I learned how to do it really, really fast. And because I did that, it's all in Spanish in my head. It's not in English. And in, in English doesn't go as fast. But in Spanish, boy, I can do the Our Father in seconds flat. That's not what it's about. That's not what this prayer is about. It's about you understanding. Lord, forgive my pride. My self-centeredness, my self-love, forgive my self-sufficiency and the thought that I can live the Christian life in my strength. That's desert thinking. 
I count myself crucified with Christ, dead to myself. I now know that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And by faith, I enter into your rest. And that is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, which we've looked at. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3. That is death. That is us allowing ourselves to be put on a cross for the sake of dying so that we can then gain the resurrected life. So, our opposition, well, it's not physical. It's not the world that is against us. It's not circumstances that are against us. It's a spiritual battle. We're going to look at that a little closer the next, in our next uh, and final message on, on, the, on the series from Egypt to the Promise on this series. And, 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 and um, Joshua learns that lesson one more time. And it is what makes him different. When he realizes he's not fighting against the walls of Jericho. Or the giants in the land. And when he realizes this is just a spiritual battle. He realizes it's one. It's one. Let me tell you why. Because Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says the following. Our struggle, our wrestling, our fight, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Now, when you realize you're really fighting the spiritual world and the spiritual battle, and you say, oh, my word, that sounds so complicated and so hard. May I remind you what the Apostle John told us? He says to us in 1 John 4, 4, you are from God, little children. And have come to overcome them. Because, here it is, greater is he that is in you, Jesus, than he that is in the world, Satan. When you grab a hold of that reality, that the God who offered you salvation on that cross who you came to accept and to, and to bow down before and ask for forgiveness and to ask to come into your heart and to your life, the one that you surrender to is greater than he that is in the world. And he lives in you. Folks, do you understand what that means? My wife, bless her heart, See, uh, yeah, we've lived in some pretty tough neighborhoods and pretty tough cities as uh, we've ministered and worked for God. And we work with all sorts of crowds throughout these, uh, well, married 20, 26 years. And someone one day asked her, um, said, aren't you afraid to go work with drug addicts, you know, and walk in those neighborhoods? And her 
silly her. Her answer was, nah, Rafa's with me. She didn't know how much I used to shake at the knees. You know, my thought was, nah, God is with me. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. But what about the enemies? Here's the part that they never got. Remember, there were the 12 spies that were sent in from, uh, from, from within that border city. Um, oh, boy, did I just go blind. And, um, and they went in for 40 days. They spied out the land, remember, and they came back and said, oh, you know, it's too much. But they never bothered to hear what the people thought. Look at what happens. I'm going to read to you from Joshua chapter 2, verse 9. Now, I want you to realize this. We're 40 years down the line. 40 years later, Joshua is going to send a couple of spies again. Just wants to just kind of get a quick reconnaissance there. And this is what the spies hear. Now, when you, when you read that, please take into note, this is 40 years later. You think they've forgotten. You know, everything that might have happened to the Hebrews in the desert and crossing from Egypt and so on. The question is this. The enemies. What are the enemy? What's the enemy thinking? You've got to know what your enemy's thinking if you're ever thinking of trying to beat them. Right? That's why... Uh, football coaches and sporting coaches, you know, they look at videos of the teams they're playing or the individuals they're playing long before they made them. Got to know your opponent's weakness. Listen to what the enemy's thinking. Now, these are the spies. They're in Jericho and they're receiving information about how the enemy thinks. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Forty years ago. Forty years ago. They're still thinking about it. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted. And no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. You've got to be kidding me. They were trembling. And those 12 spies, 10 of them said, (laughs) And they convinced the people. And never bothered to find out what the enemy was thinking. And what were they thinking? It was the enemy that was going, they got a big God, they're going to get us. And they missed out on the promised land and the rest for 40 years. Do you get it? Are you getting it? Who are you afraid of? Who are you afraid of? Have you realized he's more afraid of you 
don't have to say yes. You don't have to give in. There is no territory that you cannot take. He cannot keep you from moving forward. He is a liar and the father of lies. And he can only paralyze you with his lies. For he has no power over the children of God. You are of your father. And the evil one, says John, cannot touch you. Do you know that? Do you live and walk in that? The enemy already is afraid. And here we sit, trembling. Shame on us. Now, our last point is to understand this new territory. Let's get an idea of what this promised land is. Now, there are some misunderstandings, misconceptions regarding the promised land. We're going to look at five of them. The promised land is not heaven. Some commentators and many a hymn writer has suggested that the promised land is heaven and we will, we will come into the promised land and into that rest when we die and go to heaven. Well, there's only one problem. Was it heaven for them? Was the promised land heaven for them? Well, let's ask ourselves some questions here. Or perhaps some statements. There were no battles in the promised land? Is that true? No battles in the promised land? Well, actually, if you do the numbers, there were two battles in the desert. There were 39 in the promised land. Well, as far as I know, there's no battles in heaven. How about... Uh, no temptations in the promised land? Well, actually, if you read the book of Joshua, you kind of come very quickly into one particular temptation. It caused a lot of headaches by a fellow named Achan and his family. And then there's the fact that they kind of had to uh, try to ignore the Canaanite women. And uh, so uh, to say that there's no temptations in the promised land is to ignore the scripture. And the Bible says there's no temptations in heaven. So, promised land does not seem to equal heaven. How about um, there's no work in the promised land? Certainly there's no work. There's only rest, right? It's all about rest, entering into his rest. It must be all just about rest. Well, occupying the land actually meant labor. How did they used to eat in the desert? Anybody remember? You can shout back on that one. What, what, what? Manna. And what did they have to do to get the manna? Nothing. It just came from heaven. They went out in the morning and picked it up. You know, sort of like men when they go to the table. They think it just appears. You know, ladies work all day. They just come and see it. Manna just from heaven. It just appeared. Well, do you know what happened the minute they stepped into the promised land? No more manna. Now, what was the land full of? Milk and honey. What was the difference? You got to go get it. You have to go get the milk and honey. You have to go possess the land. 
They had to work. Have you read in your Bible the creation days? What happened on the seventh day? And the Lord God rested. Now, does that mean he's in, I don't know, the Canaries or something since the creation, just kind of hanging out at the beach? I mean, is that what you think? No, he didn't rest in the sense that he rested from his creation. But, you know, there's a little song that has never let me uh, forgot the theology of this. The little song uh, that you teach in Sunday school. You know, it took them six days to make the moons and the stars, Jupiter and Mars. But here he is, still working on me. Did God just simply stop working? No. He still works. He works on me. Just not worried about creation anymore. He did that. Now he works on refining his creation. See, the promised land is about work. But it's about a place where we just receive those promises and we have to uh, make them ours. About uh, in the promised land, there's no sin. There was no sin in the promised land. Because there's no sin in heaven, so therefore there must be no sin in the promised land. Well, it fell out to Achan and all his family who got destroyed because they sinned against God. So there was sin in the promised land. I mean, there was sin in a perfect state. What was on earth the most perfect state ever created by God? Eden. And what messed it all up? Sin. And if in a perfect state sin was able to come in, really? We're going to go around saying there was no sin in the promised land? No. And the last one, how about defeat? There is no defeat in the promised land. Well, they got defeated at the second battle, a place called Ai. Now, if you know why it happened, it happened because of their giving in to temptation, their acceptance to sin, and then thinking, they sort of reverted back to desert thinking there for a little bit. They said, ah, it's just a small city. We don't need God for this one. We can handle it. We'll just send a handful of soldiers there. We took care of Jericho. I mean, that was a big one, you know. AI, ah, piece of cake. I just sent the second group in, you know. And God said, oh, guys, 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 you haven't, you, you forgot. It's not in your strength. It's in my strength. And it's about holiness. And so they got beat up in AI. Now, there is a difference in the promised land when it comes to defeat. Here's the difference. Here's where, where, the, where, where the mark comes in. Defeat is not a must in the promised land. You don't have to be defeated. When you are living in the land of rest, you can live in victory. It is your choice to live in the power of God or not. You can divert back to desert thinking and get yourself beat up. Or you can stand in the strength of God and not get beat up. We do not have to be defeated in the promised land. Well, it is meant to be a life in the power of God. It is meant to be a life where God works 
through us, in us. See, there is the rest. It's no longer me, no longer I, but God who lives in me. This morning, as we contemplate on that thought, I ask you this question. Is God living in you? I mean, do you know for certainty that God, the creator of heaven and earth, dwells within your heart? Paul said, sanctify the Lord Jesus in your heart. Have you set your heart apart as a dwelling place for God? Because if you haven't, you just might be good at religion. But it isn't going to get you into the presence of God. Because you see, Jesus said, no man comes to the Father except by me. And John reminds us at the end of the New Testament, he who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son of God does not have life. So if I were to ask you individually, do you have life? And you begin by telling me, well, I've been a good boy, I've been a good girl, I grew up in, in and I went to Sunday school, and I went to church, and, and I've never killed anybody, I haven't robbed any banks, and, and, you know, I do good to my neighbor. And you start giving me a list of all that you've done. You missed it. You missed it. Because nothing that you do in and of yourself is worthy of the eternal God and the eternal holiness of God. There's only one thing that will grant you access to life eternal, life abundant with God, the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son. I pray that you understand that in your heart, that you make peace with God, that you understand I have come that they might have life and have life in abundance. Let's stand as we close in prayer.